Exodus chapter 40. The topic, the tabernacle was completed and the creator of the universe took up residence there above the Ark of the Covenant. The title of our message, Phenomenal Cosmic Power, Itty Bitty Living Space. <laughs> All right, let me ask you this. Let's stop for a minute. How many of you recognize that that's from the Disney movie Aladdin? How many just thought it was something stupid that I came up with? <laughs> All right. Hey, Disney movie, if you haven't seen the Disney animated movies, I, I don't know what to say to you. I mean, even if you don't have kids, I think you have to watch those, right? They're part of our culture. So I don't feel bad about this one at all. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we continue, we ask that your spirit, who is in us and in this place and with us, Lord, to teach, would, in a sense, take over and, and reveal your word to us in powerful, meaningful ways. We thank you and praise you. We do it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. If you ever find a lamp with a genie in it, and I doubt that you will, but it's better to pass on your three wishes. It never works out the way you want. I'm sure you read about the blonde, the brunette, and the redhead who were marooned on an island after their cruise ship was struck by a rogue wave. This was in USA Today not long ago. One day, the three of them were walking along the beach and discovered a lamp. They rubbed and rubbed, and sure enough, out popped a genie. The genie said, since I can only grant three wishes, you may each have one wish. The brunette said, I've been stuck here for years. I miss my family, my husband, my life. I wish to go home. Poof! The brunette got her wish and was returned to her family. Then the redhead said, well, I've been stuck here for years as well. I miss my family, my husband, and my life. I wish I could go home too. Poof! The redhead got her wish and was returned to her family. The blonde started crying uncontrollably. My dear, what's the matter? Asked the genie. The blonde whimpered, I wish my friends were still here. <laughs> True story. Some of my favorite X-Files episodes, and it takes a lot for me to actually admit that, were the dark comedies. In one, Mulder encountered a genie. With his first wish, he asked for peace on earth. The genie granted Mulder's wish by exterminating the entire human population of the earth, <laughs> except for him, guaranteeing peace. With his second wish, Mulder undoes his first wish. He then writes down his third wish to be very specific. However, just before making it, Scully helps Mulder realize that the power of a genie should not be used to force people to be good, so he ultimately wishes for the genie to be free. Whether it's Barbara Eden or Robin Williams, that famous line from Disney's Aladdin rings true. Phenomenal cosmic power, itty-bitty living space. As we close out the book of Exodus, we read this in verse 34, then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle we've read so much about was a 15 by 45 by 15 foot tent. It was separated by a thick veil into two rooms, the holy place and the holy of holies. The holy place was 15 by 30 by 15 feet. The holy of holies was a perfect cube, 15 by 15 by 15 feet. God's phenomenal glory dwelt in that cube as he accompanied his chosen people on their journey to and then into the land that he had promised to give them. 
God is omnipresent, of course. He wasn't confined to that tiny space. But it is amazing, an amazing truth that his presence was there in a special way to suggest that on the earth he dwelt among his people in the tabernacle. Where does the omnipresent God dwell on the earth today? According to Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you, believer, are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? In saying the Spirit is in you, Paul wasn't speaking poetically or metaphorically. He truly meant that God is literally practically dwelling within each believer individually and in us corporately as we gather. Many other verses confirm the fact that Jesus by his spirit actually dwells in his believers. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. Ephesians 3.17, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Colossians 1.27, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, how can Jesus dwell within us? It's by the Holy Spirit whom he sent after his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven. And that's why in 2 Timothy 1.14, Paul says plainly, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. God physically dwelt in the tabernacle. He dwells spiritually in us as his temple. In the future, we read, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. One thing ought to be obvious in creating mankind, it was God's desire to dwell among us, and that is what he is going to do in eternity future. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, God was willing to live in a tent for you. And number two, God is willing to live in your tent with you. Let's take a look at the tent for the last time in the book of Exodus, the tabernacle. Tiny houses are all that right now. Have you seen them? Do you know what I'm talking about? Wikipedia defines tiny houses like this. It says, the tiny house movement, also known as the small house movement, is a description for the architectural and social movement that advocates living simply in small homes. There is currently no set definition as to what constitutes a tiny house, However, a residential structure under 500 square feet is generally accepted to be a tiny home. Frequently, the distinction is made between small, that would be between 400 and 1,000 square feet, and tiny, less than 400 square feet. And so people, whole families are experimenting with living in houses, an entire house that is the size of maybe your den. 400, 500 square feet. Now, admittedly, that would be a big den, but those of you who think you have a small house, you don't have a small house in this sense. And so it's, it's just an interesting movement. I'll admit that some of the tiny houses are super cute and very creative. My favorites are the uh, transformed two-story shipping containers. They get these Connex containers and put one on top of the other, and they turn the inside into a tiny house for them and their six kids. It's great if you can do it. The entire tabernacle, 675 square feet. The Holy of Holies, 225 square feet. The only article of furniture in there, the Ark of the Covenant with its lid, the mercy seat. Obviously, God's glory wasn't only within the tabernacle because the pillar of cloud or fire could be seen throughout the camp hovering above it. 
But he was communicating powerfully that the creator of the universe, the God of gods, desired to tabernacle with mankind, and he condescended to do it. They set it up, and he came and indwelt it. We read in 2 Chronicles 2, verse 6, who is able to build him a temple since heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him? Yet they did build him the tabernacle and later the temple, and God blessed both of them with his physical presence. I'm not certain how theologically correct it is to say this, but the visual we get is that God is willing to live in a tent with you in order to have fellowship because that's essentially all that this tabernacle was. And by the way, as an aside, since we like to talk about prophecy, we understand that in the last days, a temple will be rebuilt on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And that confuses people sometimes because they think that's going to be an enormous undertaking. But that's because you're thinking of Solomon's temple or Herod's temple. The temple is just this tent. They could literally erect the temple overnight by putting up the holy place and the holy of holies, then they could do the build out around it. And so uh, it, it's a very small structure that was made precious because of the presence of God. The focus of this final chapter is the tabernacle being set up by Moses exactly as God specified. And that in itself suggests something great. So often we read the record of Israel's failures to obey God. And not that we relish in it, but we most often talk about Israel's failures as a people and as a nation. What I like to point out to us is that if you read the New Testament, oftentimes you're reading the failures of the church because the epistles are mostly corrective. Uh, and so it's wonderful, is it not, to read of a day and a time, a moment in history, a, a very important moment in the history of Israel when they obeyed God to the letter and did everything that he commanded and it was so glorious that he came and visited them with a sense of his presence. So verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. The tabernacle and its furnishings were prepared in about six months, and it was set up about six months later. Approximately a year had passed since the Israelites' deliverance from Egypt. After 400 years of life in Egypt, mostly as slaves, day in, day out, week in, week out, month after month, year after year, all of a sudden the tabernacle gets set up and their lives changed rapidly and dramatically in a few months. And that happens in our lives. While we may not be ready for it, we can be assured that God is overseeing it, that he is in charge of it. Sometimes your life changes dramatically for the good sometimes not so good, uh, and the readiness that we need to have is that we're just walking with the Lord, knowing that he's in charge. And so the first thing we're going to see is the actual placing of the furniture. Verse 3, you shall put it in the ark of the testimony and partition off the ark with the veil. You shall bring in the table and arrange the things that are to be set in order on it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and light its lamps. You shall also set the altar of gold for the incense before the ark of the testimony, and put up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. Then you shall set the altar of the burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And you shall set the laver between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Every piece of furniture had its exact placement. You'll remember from our previous studies that they each prefigured Jesus or his ministry. They told a story about redemption in terms of how you approached the Lord uh, and what was necessary to get to his presence. And so very precisely placed. 
Today, under the new covenant, there is no special furniture. Instead, we are described as living stones in an earthly temple, and we're being fit together perfectly by God to bring him glory. And so as we just simply walk with the Lord, obey the Lord, uh, attend a local fellowship, those kinds of things, uh, we are what is furnishing his temple, so to speak. Verse 8, you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen at the court gate. After the tabernacle and its furniture, they were to set up the tent wall that surrounded it, uh, creating what is called a court or a courtyard within. And so around the structure of the tent itself was this cloth wall. We looked at all this. Verse 9, and you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it, and you shall hallow it in all its utensils, and it shall be holy. You shall anoint the altar of the burnt offering in all its utensils and consecrate the altar. The altar shall be most holy. And you shall anoint the laver and its base and consecrate it. Under the old covenant, both people and objects were anointed with specially prepared anointing oil, and it set them apart as belonging to the Lord. It the, the, was dedicating that object, that furnishing, that person to the service of the Lord. And so the temple of showbread there in the holy place uh, you didn't move the showbread out of the way when you needed to do a craft project or uh, put, it wasn't a workbench. It wasn't a table that you could use. It was set apart for that specific use. It, there's no real counterpart to any of this under the new covenant. According to one source, and I quote, only four New Testament passages refer to the practice of anointing with oil. None of them offers an explanation. We must draw conclusions from the context. In Mark 6.13, the disciples anoint the sick and heal them. In Mark 14, Mary anoints Jesus' feet as an act of worship. In James 5, the church elders anoint the sick with oil for healing. In Hebrews 1, God says to Jesus as he returns triumphantly to heaven, your throne, O God, will last forever, and God anoints Jesus with the oil of gladness. We therefore shy away from anointing material objects with oil or in declaring objects holy. We certainly do not see relics, for example, as having any intrinsic power. Think of it this way. In movies like Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Ark of the Covenant itself held some kind of mystical powers. The Nazis wanted to unleash it on the Allied forces. I love that movie, but I must admit it's comical the way Indy saves himself and his companion they simply close their eyes. And so when this phenomenal force is released, uh, which, by the way, looks very demonic, uh, he says, close your eyes, something that no Nazi could figure out, I guess. And so they're all destroyed and wiped out while he simply closes his eyes. And, and so uh, the power of the ark was in the presence of God that attended it. The ark wasn't a WMD that could change the course of war. In fact, there was at least one time I can think of when Israel brought the ark with them and lost the battle. Uh, and so it's not a magic box. It's not a power box. It's a box that contained the Ten Commandments, and it was the presence of the Lord in that place that gave it its power. We occasionally anoint people with oil here, sick people who call for the elders of the church, as it says in the book of James. I see no scriptural authority for, say, anointing a house with oil to either bless it, as some do, or, as others do, to ward off demonic activity. It's just not something we can support from the New Testament. If you want to do that, that's fine. I don't want anybody to feel bad this morning if you've had somebody come over and anoint your house. Uh, it's just not something we would do. 
uh, because there's no precedent for it. And it, it does, I, my opinion, can I give you my opinion? I'm going to anyway. Uh, it, border, it borders on superstition. Plus, we just don't do it right anyway. Uh, if, you know, if people say, oh, no, in the Old Testament, they anointed objects and people. Yeah, but they did it a certain way with a certain oil. Uh, that doesn't matter. Why? Why wouldn't that matter? Of course it matters. And so they had a specially prepared anointing oil uh, that was according to a secret formula, okay? And then they poured it over people's heads. Not, they didn't dab it on. They poured it on so that it would run down your hair and into your beard and onto your clothing. I wonder how much oil you'd need to pour on a house <laughs> so that it ran down over the eaves at least. So anyway, I don't mean to be funny. I don't mean to be making fun of it, but that's the deal. Verse 12, then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and wash them with water. You shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him that he may minister to me as priest. And you shall bring his sons and clothe them with tunics. You shall anoint them as you anointed their father that they may minister to me as priests. For their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. Nothing new here except this. Moses acted as Israel's priest under, uh, until the priesthood could be established. Moses was a Levite, so he qualified. Add this to his rather substantial spiritual resume in terms of things Moses was called upon to do. You never know what service you might be called into for the Lord. Obviously, you have certain gifts that have been given to you by the Holy Spirit, and you have certain callings on your life, but that doesn't preclude you from being used any way the Lord wants you to be used. Uh, and so the idea that, well, I'm not gifted to do that or I'm not called to do that doesn't... Uh, shield us from being called into service. I think it was last week we looked at some servants of the Lord, almost all of them say they're not ready, they don't want to be used, even if they are prepared. And so we need to get over that and just look for opportunities to be used uh, by the Lord. Be ready. Verse 16, thus Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. What a marvelous declaration. He did it and it was all and exactly what God commanded him to do. It was so stupendous, so monumental, that the next set of verses records each component actually being set in place. I said there was a lot of repetition in Exodus, uh, and there is, but it's, uh, it's glorious repetition because we see this being done. Verse 17, it came to pass in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was raised up. So Moses raised up the tabernacle, fastened its sockets, set up its boards, put in its bars, raised up its pillars. And he spread out the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony, which means the Ten Commandments, and put it into the ark, inserted the poles through the rings of the ark, and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, hung up the veil of the covering, and partitioned off the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tabernacle of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil, and he set the bread in order upon it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tabernacle of meeting across from the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and he lit the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the gold altar in the tabernacle of meeting in front of the veil, and he burned sweet incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He hung up the screen at the door of the tabernacle. He put the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered upon it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the laver between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. 
and put water there for washing. And Moses, Aaron, and his sons would wash their hands and their feet with water from it. Whenever they went into the tabernacle of meeting, and when they came near the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he raised up the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the screen of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. You ever put something together from those instructions that come from China? <laughs> They're translated into some kind of broken English. I have such a hard time with that. Uh, I, I don't think the folks who write those instructions put the things together. If they do, then they're just being mean to you because there's always a step that you don't understand. Anyway, it seems that Moses did all the work of setting up the structure by himself. We do read about Aaron and his sons, but it, it seems like an aside to remind us that they washed before they went into the tabernacle, but uh, he did it by himself. Could it really have been a one-man job this first time? I think so, and I think it was a reward to Moses that he was called to do it by himself. He wasn't trying to be a one-man band, but having overseen this project, it's like cutting the ribbon, you know? He's, he's the one that cut the ribbon by putting this whole thing together. Uh, and apparently it made sense to him and to them because even though it's an amazing structure, uh, when I read through it, I couldn't understand how it all fit together, but Moses did, and he showed them how it was done. Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The moment the last peg was pegged, so to speak, God visited the tabernacle in a powerful way. He approved it by his presence in it and upon it. It may have been itty-bitty, just a tiny house, but he was willing to dwell there among his people. Shouldn't seem strange that Moses couldn't enter the tabernacle for at least two reasons. For one, God's glory was so visible, you didn't really need to be in the Holy of Holies to see it. But for a second reason, the tabernacle now in place, a new economy would begin in which only the priests could minister in the tabernacle and only the high priest could go annually into the Holy of Holies. Things were indeed about to change for Israel. They were about to worship God in a new way that he had prescribed in the tabernacle. And they were also about to embark on their march to the promised land. And that's why we read the last few verses. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day and fire was over it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys." And so the book ends with this powerful sense of the presence of God, of God dwelling with his people. Have you ever had to follow someone to get to your destination? Now I'm talking to those of you who are pre-GPS and probably before cell phones. There were cars. Before there were cell phones, there were cars. And occasionally, somebody would say, oh, hey, follow me. And you'd say, oh, can you, where are you going? Uh, and they'd either say, oh, left on Grangeville, right on uh, University, left on, and by the time you, you know, what are you talking about? And they, oh, just follow me. And they get in their car and you start to follow them. The very first traffic light they come to goes yellow and they power through it. <laughs> you, of course, have to break the law if you want to go through the red light. So you stop and you just watch them go. And you're hoping they go straight. No, 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 there they turn. I wonder where they turn. And then after hours of driving around, knocking on doors, is this where the party is? You finally show up and they say, hey, where were you? 
told you to follow me. It happens every time. And so I would just refuse to follow. I'd say, no, I, I will not follow you. <laughs> you can go in my car, but I'm not going to follow you. I, this is a trick. This is like a ditch trick, you know? It's like ding-dong ditch. Oh, just, just follow me. We'll get rid of Gene this way. But anyway, I don't think, did you, I don't know. I know God has a sense of humor. Do you think he did this to them? <laughs> Honey, put dinner in uh, styrofoam. God's moving. He would, the cloud would go and they'd try, you'd have to get your stuff together. How much time did you have? Is, did he churn at that wadi? Is he at the oasis? Where's God? That kind of thing. It'd be, it's kind of fun. You have to put yourself in this story. I mean, this happened. For days at a time, the glory of the Lord would stay there and then for months at a time it would stay, but then he would move all of a sudden. Is it moving? Yeah, it's moving. Let's go. Shofars would be blowing and people would be packing their tents. Ever had to get together quickly and go? It's fantastic, this whole idea that God was leading them. As beautiful and as precise as the tabernacle was, it's just a pile of material without the presence of God in it and above it. Outward form, no matter how costly and beautiful, is not enough. Inward filling is needed. And so we, we can't really, we can't clean up our outside and make ourselves ready for God. It's from the inside out. When you come to the Lord and are saved, he takes up residence in you. And that's why we say, number two, God is willing to live in your tent with you. Tabernacle and later the temple was temporary. God had something better in mind as a dwelling place, and right now it's you. But it's still a temporary dwelling. Your current physical body is likened to a tent in the Bible. Second Corinthians, the apostle says, we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed... We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We will one day be resurrected from the dead in a glorious heavenly body, or if we're alive at the coming of the Lord, we'll be transformed into our heavenly bodies at the rapture. But for now, remember that your body is nothing more than a decaying tent. And yet God says, I will live with you in your tent. I will indwell you by my spirit. Another passage that we can tie in with the glory of the tabernacle, Colossians 1, 26 and 27, the mystery which has been hidden from the ages and from the generations, but has now been revealed to the saints. To them, the saints, God willed to make known which are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I like a good mystery. Do you like a good mystery? I can still remember my jaw dropping in the sixth sense when I realized that Bruce Willis was alive, I was dead. Remember that? If you've never seen the movie, don't bother now. <laughs> in the New Testament, a mystery is something previously concealed and unknown, which is being revealed. The particular mystery I just read about is that non-Jews are saved apart from the law and all this that we've read about the tabernacle. Paul was going around preaching Jesus Christ to Gentiles with no regard to the temple in Jerusalem with its rites and rituals. I mean, he still did stuff there as a Jew because he chose to, but when he talked to Gentiles, they were templeless because he knew their bodies were the temple of the Holy Spirit. The old temple system was gone, dead, defunct in that sense. They had no reason to go back to it. A Jew maybe still had a connection to it, but a Gentile should never have a connection to it because we have something, they, because there is something better. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. It was for that message of grace that the Jews had him arrested and 
eventually put in prison. What a glorious truth it is that you can come to God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ apart from any works of righteousness and apart from any and all religion, rites, and rituals. You need no tabernacle because you are the temple within which God resides. And this is one reason I think it's a little dangerous to think we must return to our Hebrew roots and celebrate the feasts and such. It's just too easy to get lured back into legalism. I don't mind, you know, people want to have a Passover Seder or go out in their backyard under palm branches and say it's the Feast of Booths or those kinds. That's great, as long as you understand that it doesn't mean anything, that it's not spiritual, that it's only memorial, that there's nothing that God is requiring us to do under the law, uh, that that's past, that's the shadow, and we have the reality now. And this is a great and glorious thing. The Holy Spirit never dwelt permanently in human beings until Jesus rose from the dead. The church has the filling, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians, it says it is the guarantee that you're going to heaven. If you know that you're saved, if you have the Spirit living in you and you ever wonder, I wonder if I, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. You are because that is the down payment. It's the engagement ring. It's the guarantee that you are on your way to heaven. You don't need these rites and rituals. The Israelites could see God's glory in a spiritual sense. Folks should see God's glory in us if we're his temple. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price? Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You were bought... It's a picture of being a slave to sin on your way to death, and Jesus, by his blood on the cross, by his sacrifice on the cross, purchases you out from slavery to serve God. And then you're not your own anymore. Obviously, if you've been bought by God, you don't belong to yourself. He says, you're now my temple. I bought you to be my temple on the earth, and I have a tenant that's going to live with you. Remember when you went to high, college and they gave you a roommate? Some guy or I guess anybody now, guy or gal that you don't know. I had, some, I had a guy that lived not as my roommate but through a, we shared a bathroom. Wow. I, if I had three or four hours, I could tell you some stories that would drive you crazy. I mean, I never knew what was going on with this guy. When this guy took, just, when this guy took a shower it was like a flood had gone off in the bathroom. Everything was, everything was wet. There was water everywhere. He must have put a towel on the drain and swam in the bathroom. <laughs> his name was Gordon. I'd go bang on his door and say, Gordon, get out of there. I know you're in there. One day we broke into Gordon's apartment. My friends and I, we couldn't take it anymore. He had stacks of newspapers like, you know, the stacks that, you know, have you ever seen where they deliver the paper in the movies or something, you know, it's a big stack? He had stringed stacks of newspapers. I mean, you could hardly walk through. And then I thought, I better leave Gordon alone. <laughs> Gordon's going to find me in my sleep. I mean, he's, he wasn't, I think I heard an expression the other day, his cord wasn't connected to the wall. Uh, if you, <laughs> so anyway, and I, now I don't know what I'm talking about, but hey, oh yeah. So God says, I bought you, and that's a good thing because you were a slave to sin and death, and so now you're free to serve me. I own you, and I'm saying that now you're my temple. As, as, as 
unbelievable as that is, that you, your tent is my temple, and I am letting my tenant move in with you, and that tenant is the Holy Spirit. And he's going to be in you to influence you for good and for glory. And because of that, we are always able to glorify God in our body and our spirit. We don't always do that because we still have our flesh. I think I rarely do it, but at least there's the possibility. I have a position that I can always glorify God. My practice is falling short. Hopefully I'm making progress, two steps forward, one step back, uh, but that's the, that's the reality. As his temple, I should think of myself as holy. On one level, it's because we're his temple that we avoid certain behaviors. This is the old Pentecostal adage, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. Remember that? I don't remember it, but uh, I'm told that it was famous in its day. It was the itty-bitty of its day. But anyway, uh, so, you know, we say, you know, if you were doing this, would you want Jesus to come back? There's that negative aspect. If I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit, I I should be cautious about my actions. But uh, more to the point, because we are his temple, we affect the world around us by revealing him to others. It wasn't just the Jews who could see the presence of God in their temple. Foreign governments didn't come and say, what are you guys talking about? I don't see no cloud. I don't see no fire. Everybody knew that God was revealing himself through those people. And in some sense, that should be true of us. How do we use our bodies as God's temple to glorify him? It's really simple. We follow his leading and we obey his word. When we simply obey God, it brings glory to him that is noticeable by both believers and non-believers. Have you noticed something? Have you noticed that the gap between a Christian worldview and the secular worldview has grown exponentially, dramatically? That, you know, there's a huge gulf. And so, one sense, all we need to do is be Christians to bring glory to God, to show people this is what it means to be a Christian. In this culture where all these crazy things are happening and being written into law or being ignored or whatever, if I just have a successful marriage, I bring glory to God. If I, you know, go to church and minister to the Lord, if I lead some people to Christ, all of this brings glory to God. And and though people aren't lining up maybe at your life and saying, what must I do to be saved? Nevertheless, you're showing the difference that it means to be a Christian. And so the Holy Spirit is your tenant. He indwells your body. And he is there to influence you to use your body in ways that glorify God so that people looking on can see. In other words, they'll see phenomenal cosmic power in your itty-bitty life. Let's pray.